All right, we are continuing our study uh, through the book of Acts, and I'm going to have you go ahead and remain seated. We have a long text in front of us today. Uh, Acts 6, we're going to start in verse 8. We're going to read down through verse 60 of chapter 7. I know it's a lot. Uh, I promise it won't be the longest sermon I've ever preached. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be better than you think, but, uh, but it is long text. I was going to forego the uh, scripture reading because of the length of it, but I actually think it would be helpful uh, just for all of us to kind of get the whole thing uh, in front of us here as we go. So Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 8, says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, <clears throat> and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the, the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man <clears throat> never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran <clears throat> and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob <clears throat> of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, 
And he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, and you are brothers. Uh, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, who they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in charge of the congregation in the wilderness when the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech, and the star of your god, Raphon, the images you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked, to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, 
whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they crowd out, cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Our Father and our God, we ask now that you would give us insight and wisdom as we seek to study your word, uh, to learn from it, to grow. Uh, as we see the example of your servant Stephen here as he testifies to Christ, I pray that you would give each one of us boldness and, and help us to be encouraged by the text that we have this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by answering a question that was asked uh, last Wednesday night during our Bible study time here. Uh, if you were here last Sunday, you may recall that the last verse we looked at was verse 7 of Acts chapter 6. I'll read that for us now just so you can get the context of the question. It says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so the question came up on Wednesday, uh, why does it say that a great many of the priests became uh, obedient to the faith. Why, why, why does Luke specify uh, specifically that priests were becoming Christians? And I admitted on Wednesday that I had pondered that and really didn't have a great answer for it. Uh, but as I was looking at the text for this morning, I think I understand at least part of why Luke includes that specific detail about the priests. And this point, I think, will help us to set up the text for this morning. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, Jerusalem was a very significant place in Judaism, specifically the Temple Mount. Uh, to this day, it still is. Uh, Jerusalem and the Temple, that is still the holiest place uh, in Judaism. The Temple was the place of God's presence. Uh, this is where the priests served, offering sacrifices and incense to God. This is where they performed all of the rituals of Judaism. The temple, as I said, it was the place of God's presence symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant uh, in the most holy place of the temple. Jews would come daily to the temple to pray. And of course, Jews from all over Israel uh, would travel down to Jerusalem during the feast days, especially the Day of Atonement, when each Jew would bring a lamb to be offered as a sacrifice for their sins. Now, all of those symbols of Judaism, and especially temple worship, all of the priesthood and the sacrificial system was pointing to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of those symbols. As the author of Hebrews explains in Hebrews 9 verse 1, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, referring to the tabernacle and then the temple. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section, called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a, a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the table of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, <clears throat> overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, 
These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties, but into the second section, referring to the most holy place of the temple, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Very important phrase there, indicating that something changes at the coming of Christ. Verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls, I'm sorry, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of an heifer uh, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so you see there that the author of Hebrews sees Jesus' death on the cross as the final and ultimate sacrifice for sins. And as he writes earlier in Hebrews, Jesus is also the great high priest. And so all of the rituals of temple worship in Judaism were fulfilled in Jesus when he made that ultimate sacrifice for our redemption on the cross. Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of the re these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And so the sacrifices, uh, the Old Testament rituals, those were a shadow of good things to come. They weren't the realities. Sacrificing lambs could not atone for sins. Only Jesus' death could pay the penalty for our sins. The animal sacrifices were pictures of that once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. And so as Jesus died on the cross, the reality had come. Uh, thus the shadows were no longer needed. This is why we, we as Christians don't offer animal sacrifices and we don't observe all of the rituals of the Old Testament because those have been fulfilled in Christ. Colossians 2 verse 16 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, what does all of this have to do with Acts chapter 6? Well, everything. Uh, because here in Acts 6, the temple is still standing. At this point in time, the, the sacrifices are still being made. The priesthood is still going on. But the Jews in Jerusalem, you know, they're still operating under that old covenant system. But it was done. Uh, it was over. It was fulfilled in Christ. It's sort of like uh, when you cut off the head of a chicken. I've never done this, but from what I'm told, uh, the chicken continues to run around for a little while headless. And then it eventually falls over. That's sort of what's happening here in the book of Acts. The Judaic system of temple worship and the sacrifices and the priesthood, it's all done. Jesus died on the cross. That was the end of the Old Covenant. That was the fulfillment of all of those signs and symbols and, and rituals. And yet, it's still going on. 
It's still taking place. Jesus had established a new covenant in his blood. And so these signs and symbols of the old covenant were no longer operative. But like that headless chicken, uh, the temple practices are still going on. It wouldn't be until AD 70, about 40 years after this, that the temple would finally be destroyed by the Romans. Uh, that would be kind of the climactic end of the Judaic age. And so from the death of Jesus around AD 30, AD 33-ish, until AD 70, that period of about 40 years, that's the time when the, the temple worship was fading away. Uh, you remember when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple uh, was ripped from top to bottom, sort of like a crack in the foundation, uh, symbolizing that the whole thing was about to come crumbling down. That was the first sign of the end of this temple worship. Another sign of the end of the temple worship is what we read there in verse 7, and here's where I finally circle back around to answering the question. A great many of the priests were converting to Christ, which means a great many of the priests were leaving the temple. The whole system is slowly falling apart until eventually in AD 70 it will be finally destroyed completely. Nothing will be left of it. Jesus said that not one stone would be left on another, which I think God did on purpose to symbolize that the entirety of the old covenant had been fulfilled and ended. So I think that's why the mention there is given of the priests <clears throat> converting to Christ there in verse 7, because it hints at the fact that the temple worship in the Judaic age was slowly passing off the scene as priests now were joining the ranks of Christianity. Let's pick up now in verse 8, our text this morning. It says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And now we were introduced to Stephen last week in verse 5. He was one of uh, the seven men, you remember, who were chosen to oversee the care of the widows here in the Jerusalem church. And you may remember the criteria that was given back in verse 3. The apostles had said to the gathered church, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. So they had to have a good reputation. They had to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. So the church at this point, literally thousands of people, maybe in excess of 10,000, the church in Jerusalem, and the apostles said to these thousands of Christians, select seven men uh, who have a good reputation, who are known to be spirit-filled, wise men. And out of all of those people, they chose seven men, and the first name on the list was Stephen. That really tells you something of the reputation that Stephen had in this church. When the church looked among themselves for men who were wise and spirit-filled, they said, Stephen, he fits that description. Now, to be filled with the Spirit is a concept that's often misunderstood. I want to take just a minute to explain this because it comes up a lot uh, in the book of Acts, and so we're going to want to have this clear in our minds as we go. Uh, there's two ways in which people understand the phrase, filled with the Spirit. Uh, the first is like a glass that is filled with water, and that is the wrong way to think of the filling of the Spirit. It's not that Stephen had more of the Spirit than anybody else did. Uh, all of the disciples of Jesus had the same Holy Spirit. And it's not like some of them had more of the Spirit. They were more full of the Spirit than others. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a fluid. Okay, so uh, to be filled with the Spirit then cannot be understood as being filled up like a container. Uh, the second way to think of being filled with something is in terms of being driven or influenced by something. I think this is the correct understanding. So instead of thinking like a, a cup being filled with water, think of a person being filled with jealousy. 
And what that means is jealousy is controlling them. It's influencing their their thoughts, their actions. It's driving them. When we say somebody is filled with anger, we can expect there to be uh, manifestations of that. It's controlling them. They're just so filled with anger that it drives them. Uh, So rather than thinking of a cup being filled with water, maybe think of a hand filling a glove. Stephen was the glove, and the Holy Spirit of God is in him, directing him. Everywhere the Spirit was leading him, Stephen was yielded to him. He said what the Spirit directed him to say. He did what the Spirit directed him to do. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Now, in addition to being a wise man of good reputation who was spirit-filled, verse 8 says, Stephen was full of grace and power, and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So he's full of the Holy Spirit. He had a good reputation in the church. He was wise, and he was full of grace and power. Your translation there, by the way, may say faith and power. Uh, That's a disagreement among the manuscripts at that point. Uh, But the point is, Stephen was just a great Christian man. He had a great reputation. Uh, He was known as one who uh, God was really using. He was doing signs and wonders. We're not told exactly what those were, uh, whether it was healing like the apostles or whether it was speaking in tongues like a lot of the church did. We don't know exactly, but whatever it was, it was causing quite a stir here in Jerusalem. And verse 9 says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Uh, Stephen was a debater. Uh, if, if Peter was the first preacher of the church, Stephen was the first apologist of the church. He argued with people. Uh, he went into the synagogues and disputed with the Jews there. Now, a lot of Christians think it's a terrible thing to debate and to argue with somebody about Christianity, but if done in the right way, uh, this is something that some people are called to do. Uh, Christians are instructed to be ready to give an answer or a defense for our faith. And Stephen seems to have been particularly gifted as a debater. We'll see more of this in the next chapter, but uh, this is what he did. He disputed with the Jews about certain theological matters, chiefly, of course, uh, the fact that Jesus was their Messiah. Now, we're told in verse 10 that Stephen was winning all of these debates. Uh, His opponents simply could not compete with the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was reasoning and and, and speaking. Uh, As we'll see in a minute, Stephen was also very well-versed in the Old Testament. He was great at uh, building a case from specific texts of their Bible. And so the Jews are just fed up with this guy. And since he's making them look bad, they decided we have to get rid of him. Verse 11 says, they secretly instigated men. Uh, this could be referring to like bribing them, or in some way, uh, they, they instigated people who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So some of these Jews started spreading rumors about Stephen that he was blaspheming God, and that he was speaking against the law of Moses. And you can sort of see where they're coming from, because Christianity does teach Uh, that the law of Moses was fulfilled, that Jesus supersedes and replaces the old covenant. And so to a Jewish audience, that would sound like you're speaking against Moses, Uh, like you're saying, you know, turn your back on the Old Testament and and the God of the Jews. And so uh, these men are sent out to spread this distorted criticism of Stephen. And verse 12 tells us they were quite successful at this. It says they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and seized him 
and brought him before the council. Uh, Now, it's important to note here that they stirred up the people, it says, Uh, not just the elders and the scribes. They had been upset with Christians for a while at this point. Uh, You remember from our our past studies in the previous chapters, they had threatened the apostles. uh, They had beaten the apostles. They had ordered them uh, to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And so the elders and, and, and the rulers of Judaism, they were already frustrated with the church. But now for the first time, the people are upset too. So far in Acts, the people have been on the church's side. Miracles are being performed, uh, and so people are being saved by the thousands, so much so that the religious leaders were afraid to arrest the apostles in the the previous chapter for fear of the people. But now the people turn on Stephen. Uh, This report that Stephen was speaking against Moses and against their Jewish traditions, uh, this was too much for them. And the reason this is important to understand is in the end of all of this, the religious leaders will kill Stephen. They will stone him to death. And I think they felt the liberty to do that on this occasion because the people were stirred up as well. They weren't afraid of a mob reaction protecting Stephen uh, because the people were just as as angry at him as they were. And so Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin, verse 13 says, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, referring to the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, both of those things are true in a sense. Jesus had said that he was going to destroy the temple. We've looked at those passages back in our study of Luke's gospel. Jesus said that their generation would not pass away until the temple was completely demolished. And, as, and it was, by the way, as we've said before, in AD 70, uh, when the Roman general Titus sent his army into Jerusalem, they demolished the temple. And so it's also true that Jesus changed the customs that were given to Moses. Uh, again, we no longer offer animal sacrifices. We no longer uh, go to the temple. There's no priesthood anymore. And so all of those pictures of Judaism, the Sabbaths, the feast days, uh, all of that has been replaced. Now, as Christians, we gather on on the first day of the week in celebration of the resurrection of Christ. We have the symbols of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are pictures of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so there's a sense in which what they're saying here is accurate. Stephen was telling them uh, that Judaism was fulfilled in Christ and that they needed to move on uh, from temple worship and from the traditions of Judaism. They needed to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. And so they bring these accusations against Stephen, saying he's uh, speaking against our Jewish faith. Verse 15 says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Uh, Now, I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, It could mean that he was perfectly calm and sort of transcendent, or it could mean that literally his face was shining. Uh, I, I have no idea, but there was some sort of visible Uh, manifestation on Stephen. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 7 continues, the high priest said, are these things so? And so now Stephen is given an opportunity to defend himself against the charges that have been brought against him of blasphemy against God and the temple. Now let's uh, press pause on the text just briefly. We'll come back to it in a minute. Uh, But first, I want to consider a question that maybe you've thought of before. Uh, If it's true that that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament that all of those customs and symbols have been done away with, why is Leviticus still in the Bible? Why do we still read books like Exodus? What's the point of it? 
if all of those things back in the Judaic age, the history of Israel, are not for us as the New Testament church? Uh, there's a lot of answers to that question, but part of the reason we still have those portions of Scripture as Christians is to look back on the stories of the Jews in the Old Testament as examples. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. This is talking about the days uh, in the wilderness when they passed through the Red Sea, when they ate manna and water came from the rock. So he's kind of recounting some of those miraculous things in Israel's history. Uh, they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Uh, nevertheless, uh, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And then in the verses that follow, Paul goes on to talk about uh, other things that happened in the Old Testament, uh, like when the Israelites worshipped the golden calf in the time that uh, God sent serpents among them for their murmuring and all of that. And so verse 11, again, he repeats, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down, so the Old Testament written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So the things that we read about in the Old Testament are there, for our instruction. They are to be examples to us. And I think the end of the age reference there isn't about end of the world stuff, by the way, but is the end of the Judaic age, uh, the end of the old covenant. In other words, Paul is saying, yes, the end of the Old Testament age has come upon us, them living at that time. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the Old Testament scriptures are now irrelevant. Okay, so that would be a very easy uh, jump to make. If you say, well, uh, the old covenant age has passed away, we're now in the New Testament, okay? That doesn't mean that we just cut out the Old Testament from our Bibles and, and we don't need that anymore. Uh, Paul is saying those things are still relevant. We still ought to read them and learn from the examples set forth in those Old Testament stories. And the reason I bring that up is that is exactly what Stephen does here in Acts chapter 7. He's on trial before the Jewish council. He's been accused of blaspheming God and speaking against Moses in the temple, and in his defense, uh, basically all of chapter 7, Stephen walks through the Old Testament and implores the Jews to learn from the examples provided in their scriptures. And so verse 2 is where he begins his defense. I'm going to read through some pretty large sections here and then just go back and kind of give you the main point. I'm not going to get into every detail of the text because it is uh, a longer speech here. So verse 2, Stephen begins uh, to defend himself and to explain why he is saying these things. Acts 7, verse 2, Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. That's talking about the 400 years that Israel spent as slaves uh, in Egypt. Verse 7, this is now God speaking. I will judge the nation that they serve, says God. 
And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. So he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac. He circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So there's this promise that God gives to Abraham of land, of an inheritance. He tells Abraham to leave his country, to go to a land that God promises to give to his descendants. We know that today is the land of Israel. Uh, keep that promise in mind now as we go. So, so Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, which is where we get the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. Those are the descendants of those 12 sons. Verse 9, the patriarchs, <coughs> jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, this should be uh, a story that immediately comes to mind when the 12 brothers, uh, well, the 11 brothers, I guess, of Joseph uh, hate him. They're jealous of him. And so they sell him as a slave to an Egyptian. But it says there, God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. Now there was a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. So the brothers of Joseph, the ones who had sold him as a slave, now they're going through this famine. They have no food. Verse 12, but Jacob, when he heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers, those 11 brothers, he sent them on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. So here's the point of all that. As you're reading these stories, you might think, what does that have to do with Jesus? Uh, what is Stephen's point? Joseph in the Old Testament ended up saving his whole family from starvation. That is the main point of that story. Uh, when Joseph is sold by his brothers, they reject him, they hate him. They sell him as a slave to Egypt. He goes to Egypt. You remember that those weird dreams that he interprets and he, he realizes, oh, there's a famine coming. We need to store up food in order to survive. And in the end, he ends up having the food there stored up that sustained Jacob and the 12 brothers of Joseph, the, the ones that had sold him as a slave, he saves their lives. 75 people total. So that's, that's basically all of Israel at this point. And so here's the point. All Jews are descended from that family, and that family would have starved and gone out of existence had it not been for Joseph. Joseph, the one that the brothers hated and rejected, the, ones, the one that they had sold as a slave, he ended up being their savior. How do you see where I'm going with that? Let's continue. Verse 17. Now Stephen moves to talk about Moses, another man that God used to save Israel. It says, as, <clears throat> as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So now they're, uh, now they're, they're living in Egypt. The descendants are growing and multiplying until there arose over Egypt another king or another pharaoh who did not know Joseph. So in all of these 400 years in Egypt, God had not forgotten the promise that he made to Abraham to give the land of Israel to his descendants. And so now God is going to free the Jews from their slavery and lead them to the promised land. This is the, you know, the whole story of the book of Exodus, if you're familiar with it. And God does this through the man Moses. Verse 19 says of this Pharaoh that he dealt shrewdly with our race, with the, the Jews, 
He forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. In seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Now, that's one of the key verses uh, to this whole sermon, in my opinion. Moses had it in his heart to rescue the Jewish people from their bondage in Egypt, but the Jews did not understand this, and so they rejected him. God was going to provide salvation through Moses' hand, but they slapped it away. Verse 26, on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbors, these are two Jews that are fighting, and he says, it says there, he thrust Moses aside and said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Uh, by the way, the, the answer to the question, who made you a ruler over us? The correct answer is God. Uh, but initially, they didn't want Moses to lead them. Verse 29, at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. This is the famous story, of course, of the burning bush, uh, also found there in Exodus. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt." So now Stephen makes the point here in verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. I hope you see the point there that Stephen is making. Joseph was chosen by God to save Israel from the coming famine, and his brothers hated him and rejected him. Then in Egypt, Moses was chosen by God to save Israel from slavery, and they rejected him too. And so the point that Stephen is making here is this. The Jews have a history of rejecting their God-appointed saviors. Those whom God sends to rescue them, they tend to reject them and treat them poorly. They did it with Joseph, they did it with Moses, and now they were doing it with Jesus. He was their Messiah, and they rejected and killed him. What's amazing is in all three of these cases, God still provided salvation despite this rejection. Joseph was sold as a slave. He was completely hated and rejected by his brothers. And while the brothers probably thought they'd never see him again all the way over there in Egypt, he still ended up saving their whole family from starvation. And even though the people initially rejected Moses, God still used him eventually to lead Israel out of Egypt. Verse 36, this man, referring to Moses, led them out 
performing wonders and signs in Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now Stephen is making the point clear. Uh, you guys claim to be big fans of Moses, but remember, Moses is the one who said that one day God would raise up another prophet like him. Uh, back in Deuteronomy 18, some of the last words of Moses before he died, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire in the, uh, any more lest I die. The Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So God is going to raise up this man. God will uh, put his words in this man's mouth so that he will speak all that God commands him to say. Uh, guess who that man is? Uh, here's a hint. Jesus said in John 12, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Okay, back to what Moses said in Deuteronomy then. Moses says, God's going to raise up this prophet. He will speak through this man. And God says, you better listen to him. Verse 19, whoever will not listen to my words, that he, talking about Jesus, will speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's a threat. That's a warning. That judgment will come if you refuse to listen to that prophet. Back to our text, verse 38, Stephen, still talking about Moses, he says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. So Moses, the great leader of Israel who gave us the law uh, that all Jews regard so highly, even here centuries later, verse 39 says, our fathers refused to obey him, but they thrust him aside. That's the second time that phrase has been used of Moses, how they rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol. And they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you were made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So uh, even after Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt, as he's on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God, Israel was breaking them. Uh, they said, forget this Moses guy. He's been up in the mountain for a while. Let's worship a cow. Uh, and here's the point again. Israel has a history of rejecting those whom God sends as saviors and rulers for them. And that rejection ultimately leads to judgment. In the Old Testament, the judgment was exile in Babylon. That's how the Old Testament really ends. Uh, the storyline of the Old Testament is, you know, they, uh, God calls them out of Egypt. He brings them into the promised land. They ultimately reject God. They fall into sin. They worship idols. And in the end, they're carried off to Babylon in exile. And so that's the judgment of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the judgment for these Jews who had rejected Jesus and sentenced him to death, their judgment would be the destruction of Jerusalem. 
And for many of them living here, uh, that would mean their death as well. In AD 70, the Romans barricaded the city of Jerusalem. They starved out many of the people. Then after a few weeks of that, they broke down the barricade and slaughtered them. This was God's judgment against Jerusalem for once again, rejecting the one whom God had sent to save them. And so Stephen wasn't speaking against Moses at all. Uh, that was the charge that was made against him. He was really trying to get these Jews to obey Moses. Uh, after all, it was Moses who had, had prophesied about the coming of the prophet Jesus, who would uh, be a prophet sent from God. And he said, you better listen to that prophet. And so Stephen uh, wasn't contradicting Moses. He was trying to get these Jews to learn from the mistakes of their ancestors instead of repeating them. And so now Stephen moves to the temple. Uh, the last few verses here of the sermon, we're almost through the text. Uh, hang with us just a little bit longer. Uh, he's, he's been accused, you remember, of speaking against Moses and against the temple. Uh, that was the accusation brought against Stephen. So uh, he's, he is, of course, claiming that the temple will be destroyed, and they, they consider that blasphemy. Verse 44, Stephen begins to answer that charge. He says, Our fathers had a tent in the wilderness, uh, I'm sorry, a tent of witness in the wilderness, talking about the tabernacle, uh, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Uh, our fathers, in turn, brought it, brought the, the, the tabernacle, which is sort of a tent, uh, like a portable, cheaper version of the temple. Okay, uh, The place of God's presence uh, was the tabernacle first. It was brought into the promised land with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before their fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, talking about the temple. Now, uh, once again, let's press pause on the text. We want to go back to uh, 1 Kings 8. I just want to read a small portion of Solomon's prayer. This is the dedication of the temple, uh, right after the construction of the temple has been completed. Solomon prays, Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So Solomon understands this temple isn't literally a house for God, as though the omnipresent God of the universe could fit inside of a building. Of course not. That isn't the point of the temple. Rather, verse 28, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And so this is why the temple is known, as Jesus said, as the house of prayer. It's a place that symbolized the presence of God among his people so that they would come and pray at the temple. And so Stephen says in our text, verse 47, that it was Solomon who built a house for God, uh, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Uh, what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what, what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So the Jews here in Jerusalem considered it blasphemy. Uh, to say that the temple was going to be destroyed. And Stephen is saying, uh, good grief, guys. Uh, God is a lot bigger than this temple. The temple can crumble and it will have zero effect on the God of the universe who can't be contained in a house anyways. Heaven is God's throne. The earth is his footstool. His hand made everything that exists. 
Uh, you guys are so focused on the traditions and on the, on, on the ceremonies and on the law of Moses that you've rejected the prophet that Moses told you about. You're so committed to the temple and the systems of the Judaic age, you've missed out on the reality of all of those signs and symbols, the death of Jesus on the cross. And so, yes, it is all fading away. The Judaic age is done. The temple that you love so much will be gone in just a few years. And so having explained both of these issues, now Stephen concludes with these words. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, speaking of Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Yikes. Uh, that is a stern rebuke. You people think you're so special because you're God's chosen nation and you received the law of Moses, but you're resisting the work of God among you. You killed the Savior that God sent to you, just like your fathers rejected those whom God had sent to rescue them. And so here's the reaction of the people to this rebuke, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. They are seething mad. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. They literally just plugged their ears and rushed at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Uh, Gamaliel couldn't stop them this time. And as uh, Stephen is here still speaking, they rush at him as a mob and they take him out of the city and stone him to death. And in a sense, this is sort of what they had to do because of what he had said. Uh, Stephen, gazing into heaven, said, I see the glory of God in Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Now, here's why that's significant. Back in Luke 22, we read of the trial of Jesus before this same council, uh, the, these same Jewish leaders. It says, when day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. They led Jesus away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from, our own, from his own lips. And so when Jesus said, you're going to see me seated at the right hand of God, they understood that to be a claim to deity. And so they said, this is blasphemy. We don't need any more evidence. Let's condemn Jesus right here and kill him. And so here in Acts 6, I'm sorry, Acts 7, Stephen says the exact same thing. I see Jesus at the right hand of God. Now that leaves the council with only two options. They either kill Stephen just like they did Jesus, or they have to admit that they were wrong to condemn Jesus. And they weren't about to do that. It's interesting, by the way, in verse 56, that Stephen says he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Normally in Scripture, we read of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. But here, Jesus stands up as he's watching Stephen about to die as a martyr. 
I can only imagine the, the confidence, the encouragement that that was to Stephen as they began to stone him. He looks up and sees his Savior standing there, ready to welcome his faithful servant. Verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So as Stephen is being killed, he asks God to forgive his executioners. And by the way, we know that God answered that prayer, at least in part, because there's a little note there back in verse 58 that there was a young man named Saul who was a part of all this. He was perhaps one of those debating with Stephen. Uh, we know from the next chapter that Saul consented to the stoning of Stephen. He was involved in this execution. He had a hand in it. And that man would eventually be forgiven. He would become the greatest church planner Christianity has ever known. Augustine said that the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. Well, there's a lot more that we could say about this text as we conclude, but let me just close with one final point of application. We'll pick up the rest next time. Stephen provides for us here a great example of a spirit-filled Christian who boldly and powerfully spoke to a hostile audience. And for Christians living today in a culture that is increasingly hostile to our faith, uh, we need to learn from his example and be able to do what Stephen did here. And this requires a number of things. Obviously, Stephen was well-studied in the Old Testament and in Scripture. Uh, he was a skilled debater and all of that. But I want to highlight just one point that I think applies to all of us. Jesus said in Luke 21, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And of course, he does that through uh, the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is exactly what we see happening here with Stephen. He stood trial for his faith in Christ, and the Holy Spirit so directed him that he was able to speak with wisdom and power that none of his opponents could, could argue against. In other words, it wasn't just Stephen who came up uh, with all of this, this speech that he gives in Acts 7. The Holy Spirit was guiding him. The Holy Spirit gave him the words to say. And you and I have the same Holy Spirit. Again, being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean that Stephen had more of God's Spirit than you do. Uh, all of us who have submitted our lives to the Lordship of Christ, we have been given the gift of the Spirit. The issue of filling is like being filled with anger or joy or jealousy. Again, it's being filled with the Spirit, meaning the Spirit in us is directing my words and my actions. I'm operating as the Spirit inside of me is influencing me. And one aspect of, being, of that uh, is this ability that the Spirit gives us to speak boldly and persuasively for Christ. A lot of us tend to think, well, that's great for Stephen, but I don't think I could ever do that. And that just shows, uh, in a sense, that we don't have the faith in the Holy Spirit to give us words to say. One aspect of being able to speak persuasively about Christ and the Holy Spirit giving you this kind of wisdom is just to stand up and speak. When the opportunity presents itself for you to testify to Christ, you and I ought to follow the example of Stephen and be bold to speak, trusting that the Holy Spirit will guide us and give us the words to say. 
Uh, next week, we're going to look at the results of the stoning of Stephen. I know this was a long text this morning. We don't normally cover this much ground, uh, but it was kind of hard to break it in the middle of uh, in the middle of his speech. But next week, going to look at the results of this. Uh, pick up a few loose ends that we're leaving here uh, this morning, and we'll also be introduced to Saul uh, a bit more as well.